Mike said that uh, God goes at his own pace, and, and you don't know how true that is. About five and a half years ago, Scott Holly and I were sitting in my office, and I'd gotten this letter from these three seminary students that said they were interested in planning a church, and they had a little outline for how they would plan a church, and it was like maybe, I don't know, a half a page, and it said, we're three guys that are best friends. We're committed to each other. Uh, we know the Green Trees, a church planting church. You should hire us to plant a church. And that was basically their plan. And, uh, and I said, Scott, you know, I really, I really don't want to hurt these guys' feelings. I don't want to discourage them. You know, they're young seminary students. So why don't you go and have a cup of coffee with them and talk to them about church planting and, and you know, kind of politely tell them no, but, but encourage, you know, their vim and vigor. The three names on the letter to me were Mike Werkheiser, Phil Woods, and Jeremy Biedenbaugh. So... God's timing is perfect. Uh, Mike and Phil are going. Jeremy's not going anywhere. He's staying here with me and Kirkwood and uh, going to help shepherd you all and walk along with you as we seek to follow Jesus. Provision Sunday meets Luke's gospel. This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18 as we talk about uh, God's faithfulness. On uh, August the 16th, 1812, was one of the worst days in American military history. William Hull, who was actually a a uh, champion of the Revolutionary War when he was a young man, uh, was in his late 50s, early 60s, around 1812, when hostilities with England were looming on the horizon. Uh, and he was in charge of uh, part of the U.S. forces at Fort Detroit, which is now Detroit, Michigan. Uh, the settlement of Detroit in that time was about 800 people. Uh, the garrison was actually about 2,500 soldiers, and they were in a very good position to defend themselves. The British were, uh, were bringing in troops and uh, thinking about besieging the fort and trying to uh, defeat the Americans, but they only had at their disposal, including all of the British troops uh, and all of the uh, American Indians that were taking part, they only had about 1,300 men. So the Americans were in a great position. They were inside the fort. They were well supplied, ready for battle, and the uh, British and the, uh, and the Indians showed up, and almost without a single shot being fired literally almost without a single shot being fired, General Hull surrendered the fort without any opportunity for battle, with great fortifications and superior numbers, and, and in fact, a, a group of a capable and commanding officers under his leadership, he quit without a struggle. Why did that happen? How is that possible? Well, the British were masters at deception. When they landed on the far bank, uh, just close enough for the Americans to see, they began marching all the troops that were arriving in front of the fort for folks to see. And division after division after division kept passing by, and then the Indians would come by and pass by. What Hull saw in front of him was a massive army. He thought probably five, six, seven thousand 7,000 men. What he didn't realize was that these 1,300 men were passing in front of the fort, going around the corner behind the woods, and just simply walking in a circle. Same group of soldiers. Hull was outfoxed. He gave in to his fear. He believed the lie that he was outgunned and outnumbered, and he believed that he and his men and the women and the children in the fort, including his own daughter and granddaughter, were going to be slaughtered. Now, he didn't bother to scout out the enemy positions. He didn't feel out the enemy's strength. He simply resigned the field and capitulated in disgrace. Why do I tell you that story this morning? Well, it's because I believe that disciples of Jesus are also tempted to believe a lie, and to live in fear. 
We believe that we are the ones who must provide for ourselves and that God may be casually interested, but he isn't intimately involved in caring for and walking with us through the course of life. And so we become uh, overly cautious at times. We assume uh, that our circumstances are overwhelming. Uh, Today, as I said, is Provision Sunday, and and this is a Provision Sunday unlike any other since I've been at Green Tree Church as far as the economy in our country and and all around the globe is concerned. Most people would tell you it looks like next year's going to be a very bleak year. And so do we simply say, uh, because of that, we need to hold back. We need to scale back. We need to not trust God, but rather we need to provide for ourselves and watch our own back, so to speak. It's easier to get a little bit more... uh, defensive-like in posture when it comes to looking at this particular economy, but not just financially speaking. I think there, there are cases uh, at Green Tree where we, we've given up on sharing the gospel with friends before we've ever really tried. We've ever really walked down that road. Our assumption is they would never believe, or I wouldn't necessarily have the words to say, and without ever inviting a friend to church or without ever trying to get to, next, get to know a next-door neighbor or a classmate, or business associate to the, to the point where you can sit down and have a conversation with them about Jesus, we simply leave the field. Marriages are being surrendered because we don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ can have an impact on our lives. Friends, I think we're not all that different from General William Hall. I didn't tell you that story because I wanted to, to disgrace him. I told you that story because I believe sometimes we live there emotionally and spiritually. We see this enemy, and what we don't realize is that it's a one small enemy walking around and around in a circle, and we make it much bigger than it ought to be. So how do we approach Provision Sunday? How do we approach as disciples of Jesus Finding our courage, finding the will to fight the good fight and the willingness to trust Jesus even in these uncertain times. The passage we're going to look at this morning is a very familiar passage. If you've been around church for more than a couple months, you've probably heard this story before. The emphasis that is usually brought out in this passage that that as we preach and teach it tends to be in the first uh, half of the story, the the inner the uh, interchange between Jesus and a man who is identified in this passage as a ruler. Uh, In Matthew and Mark's gospel, he's called a rich young ruler. I'm going to suggest this morning that, that we're not going to emphasize that conversation, but that that conversation is included by, by Luke and the other gospel narratives because it is a preamble to a more important interaction between Jesus and his disciples. So with that in mind, Luke chapter 18 Follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. We'll begin in verse 18 and read through verse 30. Hear the word of God. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus looking at him with sadness said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. 
And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I ask that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to what you want us to know. Father, I thank you for this word. It is very uh, pertinent this morning as we think about uh, giving of our time and our energy and our finances to uh, ministries here at Green Tree Community Church and in doing so, seeking to, to build your kingdom, to have your kingdom furthered through our efforts, through our giving. Yet, Father, it is a a scary time in which we live as far as uh, the world's circumstances are concerned. And we are tempted to live in fear. We are tempted to uh, look at the newspaper instead of at the pages of Scripture for our hope, for our emotional well-being. And so, Father, it's good that we're here this morning so that we can again turn our attention to what you say is ultimately true. Father, I pray that you would use me this morning. I pray that you would forgive my sin. Uh, And I pray that your words would be spoken. Lord, what I have to say is really not important. It is your eternal word that stands the test of time and brings nourishment to our souls. And so we pray for that. Pray that you would forgive my sin and that you would not allow me to stand in the way of what you want to say to your people this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to offer some observations in verses 18 through 27, which is really kind of the bulk of the conversation between Jesus and this particular ruler. And again, you may have heard this uh, story before, and this is where most people spend a good portion of their time. Uh, but again, I believe that it's in this gospel because it's, it's, a, it's a preamble is the word I used. It's, it's an introduction to what Jesus has to say, which is incredibly important for his disciples as they announce their choice to follow him. But I don't want to skip right over it. So let me make a, a, a few observations. The first one is in verse 18. The ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to suggest to you that this ruler is not asking a question, but rather he's seeking validation. Notice he doesn't ask Jesus, how can I honor God with my life? He doesn't get himself out of the way and put God at the center and say, what do I need to do uh, to be a person who worships God with all of my life? Rather, he looks inward, he looks at himself, and he says, God, or Jesus, I want you to validate that the choices which I am making and the way in which I'm living my life will lead me to eternal life. Now, it's a subtle but very important difference because it leaves me in charge. God, what do I have to do to get eternal life? I'm, well, I'm up to the task. It's well within my grasp. I just simply need you to point me in the right direction. Most of us want to be validated. Most of us want to be seen as the one uh, who's right. Uh, and it's important to us to have others uh, not necessarily challenge us or correct us, but rather you know, pat us on the back and say, boy, you're doing a, you're doing a great job. Uh, as many of you know who I've participated in your marriages, I do premarital counseling with a lot of couples. And uh, this was probably 12 or 15 years ago. I had a young couple in my office, and we got around to the topic of conflict resolution. And it's one of my favorite uh, topics because we talk about, you know, do you, do you disagree sometimes and how do you disagree? What does that look like? And what does a healthy marriage uh, do to, to have good conflict resolution? And this young couple, they were just so sweet, and they smiled all the time, and they were soft-spoken and really just delightful. And they said, oh, we never fight. 
I said, okay, come on. Now, you, you've never had one harsh word with one another. You've never had a disagreement where, you know, you, the blood started to boil even a little bit. They said, no, we just, we never fight. We just love each other so much. We just always get along. And I poked and I prodded and I asked all kinds of questions, nothing. I got nowhere. So they're getting ready to leave. And I said, okay, just, you know, I, I see him about every two weeks. Just before the next time we get together, in the next two weeks, just try to have a fight. Just do me a favor and try to have an argument. It just, if you, can, if you can manage that. So they come back two weeks later. I said, okay, anything happened? And I was praying, actually, I, I don't know. I don't pray this way all the time, but I prayed that they would have a fight. So anything happened? And, and she said, oh, no, we've gotten along just as we always have, no problems. And uh, he said, well... <laughs> <laughs> that was all I needed. <laughs> he said, well, I said, well, what? He says, well, you know, we were in the furniture store last week and we had, we'd gotten it down to either this couch or that. I don't remember the blue couch and the red couch. We got it down to two couches and I really kind of liked the blue, but I knew she liked the red. So I said, let's get the, let's get the red. And she said, you don't like the couch I picked out. And I wanted to wave flags and going, stop, you're about to get run over by the train. And he just kept right on going. He said, no, I really liked the blue one a little better. Well, you didn't tell me that in the store. Well, I, I tried to explain it to you. And all of a sudden, you know, the blood started to percolate a little bit. I just sat back and folded my arms. And I am not exaggerating. Within five minutes, they were yelling at each other in my office. Just one of the greatest ministry experiences I have ever had. I said, good, now we can talk about conflict resolution. But, but the point was, as they sat there and tried to be sweet with one another, what they were saying is, I want you to validate me. I want you to say I'm right. I want you to say that I'm okay. And that's what this rich ruler is looking for. He's not looking for salvation by grace. He's looking for God to endorse what he's doing. However, Jesus clarifies the situation for him. Verse 19 to 20, and Jesus said, and why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus clarifies that there's only one person qualified to answer this question. Man cannot answer this question. If you ask somebody, what do I do to get eternal life, and they don't represent to you what they believe God says, you're wasting your time talking to them because they don't know any more than you do. I couldn't begin to tell you how to get eternal life outside of Scripture, nor should I. So Jesus rightly says, look, the only person that can answer the question is God himself. And then what does Jesus do? He answers the question. Jesus says, how do you do? I'm God, and you've come to the right place. And in a sense, I believe he asked him, do you really want the answer? Do you really want to know the truth? So Jesus clarifies who can answer, and in that clarification, he claims deity. Then in verses 21 and 22, Jesus identifies the real issue. The, young, the, the man says, all these things I've kept from my youth. In other words, hey, Jesus, I'm a pretty nice guy. I don't think he was saying I'm perfect. I don't think he was saying, oh, I've never sinned in my life. I think he's saying, yeah, I get the whole commandment thing, and I'm, and I'm tracking along with that pretty well. I'm, I'm doing the things I ought to be doing. And Jesus said this. In a sense, he said, yeah, you sure are. You're doing everything you're supposed to be doing with one exception. One thing you still lack. Notice Jesus didn't say, I've got a laundry list for you. There's only one thing you lack. You're this close to the kingdom of God. You're almost there. What is it? Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Jesus identifies the real issue, which is there's something blocking this man that's as, as big as a mountain that he can't begin to climb on his own. 
And Jesus challenges him to have a desire to remove that obstacle. Jesus doesn't answer all of the questions surrounding this. He says, let's just take the first step and let me help you get that obstacle out of your way. Jesus is offering you that same promise this morning. What's the obstacle in the way of faith in your life? What's the thing that's so bad, you just, so big, you just don't think you could get over it? Or what's the one thing in your life you're simply convinced you cannot live without? And if that isn't Jesus, it's the wrong thing. And Jesus says to you and he says to me, let's identify those things and let me help you move them because that's why I have come. Let's get this stuff out of the way and then you come along with me and then let's see what happens. Then the adventure towards eternal life can begin. And we know the sad answer comes in verse 23. When he heard these things, he became, notice, notice these descriptive terms. He became very sad for he was extremely rich. Luke emphasizes his sadness, his emotional well-being, and the reason for it because of his extreme wealth. He denies his offer. He says, Jesus, I just wanted you to tell me I'm okay. I didn't actually want you to change something in my life. I didn't want you to challenge the way I think or my worldview. I simply wanted you to validate that I was on the right path. I, I don't want what you're offering. And he denies Jesus because Jesus wouldn't tell him he was okay when he wasn't. And then Jesus makes a startling announcement in verse uh, 22 following, um, or verse 24, excuse me, following. Jesus looked at him with sadness and said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, money doesn't equal God's blessing. And I think in, in, in many ways, uh, even though we probably wouldn't say this overtly today, I think in many ways our culture says, if you are well off financially, you're one of the blessed. <laughs> You're one of the, the ones that have more advantage. You're, you're one of the ones that is going to have a better uh, condition of life, so to speak, looking only and solely at the physical while ignoring completely the spiritual. And so Jesus says, friends, you're making a big, big mistake. Money does not equate God's blessing. And then in verses 28 through 30, Jesus reveals that the right kind of risk taken leads to the right kind of rich. Jesus makes this announcement, and everybody standing around said, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, what's impossible with men is possible with God. So up to this point, uh, the disciples are kind of standing here listening to this conversation go back and forth. And Peter is you know, he's kind of listening to Jesus and listening to the rich guy and listening to the rich guy and listening to Jesus. And then kind of everybody says, well, oh, my goodness, who can be saved? And Jesus says, you know, it's not possible except with God. And Peter's taking all this in. Hadn't said a word yet. And then I think something clicks in Peter's mind. And in verse 28, it says, And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. I think Peter puts two and two together pretty quickly, and he cuts right to the chase, and he says exactly what he's thinking. I, I like a person that does that. I like a person that just, just gets it out on the table and says, You know, let, let me just, let's just talk about this. Um, uh, one time Cindy came home from getting her hair done, and uh, she said, do, do you like my hair? loaded question. And, uh, and I said, yeah, it's okay. And Jordan was in the room with me and he looked at me and said, I don't believe I'd have said that. <laughs> I like a person that speaks their mind. You know, Jordan said, dad, I, yeah, boy, you, that was bad. <laughs> and I 17 year olds, a whole lot smarter than me. And Peter's kind of, he's kind of thinking and he just blurts out what he's saying. He's saying, now hold the fort, hold the fort. 
Jesus, we've left everything. We've impoverished ourselves for you. So help me understand my spiritual condition, Peter says. Have I made a good choice? And now you got to remember where this is in Jesus's life. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. The religious leaders have turned against him. The public uh, tide of opinion is changing in a negative direction. He's going down in the polls, so to speak, okay? And Peter's observing all this, and he's going, you know, I'm just, I want to be sure, but I'm not. Okay, Jesus, we've left everything. What about, what about us? Did we make a good choice? And look at Jesus' answer in verses 29 and 30. And he says to them all, so Peter's kind of representing the disciples, and, and Jesus answers not just Peter, but all of them who are thinking the question that Peter has blurted out. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, Peter, you have made a great choice. You have made a fantastic choice because you've chosen the right kind of rich. Don't worry about the cost. Don't worry about taking care of you. I will do that. You are investing wisely. In other words, Jesus says the way to riches is abandonment. (laughs) The way to being the right kind of rich is saying, I'm not going to get tied down by the things of this world. I'm not going to lose focus on Jesus and on his calling for me to be his disciple. I'm going to focus on him and I'm going to follow him. And if he leads me to wealth or if he leads me to poverty or he leads me to health or he leads me to sickness, he leads me to success or he leads me to failure from a human standard, none of that matters. I'm going to follow him. She says, that's what I'm looking for. You must be a reckless, willing to be recklessly abandoning in following me. So I got to, think, got to thinking about this. And Jesus lists a whole bunch of things that are important to us, uh, children and homes and, and, and family relationships. And I got to thinking about, well, what do, what do I need to abandon in order to follow Jesus? Because uh, I don't think he was just speaking about human relationships. I think he was saying anything that could possibly get in the way of your trusting me, you got to put that behind. But if you do it, that's a good decision. So I began to think, okay, what about us today? You know, 21st century Kirkwood, Missouri, Green Tree Community Church, Provision Sunday, what do we need to abandon in order to follow Jesus? Let me give you three things. The first is this. I believe we need to abandon what the ruler had, which was a man-centered faith. The ruler said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It's all about me. I just want to do enough to get in. I don't want you to control my life. I don't want you to be my Lord. I just don't want to get in trouble. That's a man-centered faith. And Jesus says, I demand your complete surrender. He says to the guy, you only have one problem, but it's a big one. But I demand that you surrender that to me. Go get rid of it and come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus demands our surrender. If I'm going to be his disciple, I must abandon a man-centered faith. Secondly, I think it's obvious from the text that I need to abandon living for the riches of this world. The world standard says get more, get the best, get better. And Jesus says don't let that get in your way. Get rid of it as quick as you can. I'll provide for your needs. I'll take care of you. You just follow me and don't let that be a stumbling block. And how often I worry about my finances or I think I've got to control it a little bit better. I've got to, got to work harder to do whatever I can to, to earn more because I've been sucked into to this idea that by the world standards, riches are important. And Jesus says, you can't live for those. There's something much more important. There's a better kind of rich. 
we have a little uh, compassion daughter over in India. I think I've, I've shared that with you all before. And this is a letter I was digging through my stuff the other day. And I found this letter. It's actually from last year. Uh, it's last year's uh, January letter. And she's writing to us about what she did. We, we sent her a little extra. And when I say a little extra money, we sent her like 20 extra dollars. Okay. I'm not talking about $500. We sent her a little extra money for Christmas. And she writes back, and the first thing she says is she talks about school, and she loves uh, math and science and English. My favorite subject is science. What is your favorite subject? To which Jordan responded, do you think they have recess in India? I don't know. We can, we can write back and find out. But then she begins to talk about Christmas and all that God has given me and my ta- talents and how I'm getting to use them to celebrate Christmas and celebrate his blessing in my life. And she was able to get some flowers and some shoes and some balloons and a dress. And then she said, I am so grateful for you. You know, how humbling is something like that. But you know what? It reminded me there's a right kind of rich. And it doesn't lie in, you know, whether I get a new set of golf clubs or not. It lies in following Jesus and helping others see his kingdom for what it is. So I think I need to abandon my man-centered faith. I need to abandon my living for the riches that, uh, by the world standard. And then third one, I think you've got to be willing to abandon your reputation. You know, again, remember where we are in Jesus's life. This is where folks are starting to say, I think he's a little little crazy. You know, the, the religious leaders don't like him at all. And they're trying to turn other people against him. And yet he, he didn't worry about his reputation. He didn't worry about what other people thought. He simply did the will of his father. And I think he's calling us to do the same. You try to explain to somebody in this day and age that you're trying to earn as much as you possibly can so you can give away as much as you possibly can, and they're going to start scratching their heads thinking you're just a little bit odd. You try to explain to somebody that your goal is to live with less so that you can be more generous in bad economic times, I think people will stop scratching their heads and they'll think you're actually a little bit nuts. And then if you try to tell them that you're doing this, not because you're a nice person, but it's because of Jesus and what he's given to you, and I think they'll probably think you're a bit batty. Are we willing to give up and abandon our reputation in order to follow Jesus? Well, what, what difference will it make in our lives? What will we gain, so to speak? And that's the question that Jesus answered. I've already read the verses for you. Nobody who's, who's abandoned all of these things will fail to receive many times more in this time, many times more in these times, and in the age to come, eternal life. I think Jesus offers two basic promises here. He offers you, uh, as the HBO TV series, A Band of Brothers. You've seen that show, and it, it's out on DVD now. You ought to watch it sometimes. It's about uh, these guys in World War II and how they, they're in Europe, and they've they're fighting in the European theater and how they're so close. And it's really not a, it's, it, they use the second world war as a backdrop. It's really a story about relationships and how people become together. Even when they fight with each other and don't get along and struggle, they, they still are loyal and serving one another. And Jesus says, that's what you get. I've got a whole community of believers that'll walk alongside you. That'll care for you, nurture you and encourage you. But he says, not only in this life, but what else does he say? And in the age to come eternal life, we've come full circle back to the original question. How do I get eternal life? Jesus says you get eternal life by abandoning everything and coming and following me and putting your trust solely in me. But I promise you, if you do that, you will not be disappointed. The temptation this morning is to play it safe. Following Jesus can be a scary proposition. The financial times ahead of us do not look all that bright. 
In fact, they probably look pretty bleak and maybe in your life bleaker than even I know or some of your friends know this morning. Are we willing to abandon what the world says should be our priorities in order to follow Jesus? Are we abandoning what the world might even call common sense in order to follow Jesus? Or will fear and anxiety and caution be our motivators? On August 16th in 1812, General Hull quit before the fight began. And the men in his command around him wept in shame as he handed over his sword to the British general. About three years and four months later, there was another battle, although the, the, uh, the circumstances had switched. The Americans were badly outnumbered, about 5,000 American troops to about 11,000 British regulars. They weren't fighting in Detroit. They were fighting down in what is now uh, New Orleans, just on the outskirts. But there was a radically different outcome. General Andrew Jackson Jackson actually thought that the British were going to land with about 25,000 troops, and all he could muster were 5,000 men, many of whom were militia. But Jackson stood his ground. He believed that his cause was just and that his nation was worth the risk of battle. Was he fearful? Yes, he was. If you read in his diaries, he was very unsure about how all of this was going to come out. Was he lonely? Yes, he had left behind his family, his wife. He had left behind the comfort of his home in Nashville, Tennessee, and he had been through hardship and he had put himself in harm's way. To the extent that that a few nights before the battle really engaged and the British were lobbing in some shells, the home in which he was staying that night was destroyed by a bomb. (laughs) And yet Jackson was willing to take the risk. And he was willing to engage in the battle because he knew that this great risk could lead to the riches of freedom. And the battle was the Americans, as we now know, because history tells us. The risk is before you this morning. I'm not going to deny that. The challenge to trust Jesus is before us as a congregation this morning. I'm not going to pretend that isn't a reality. I'm not going to suggest for one moment that your net worth is better today than it was a year ago. I've stopped looking at my my statements that come in the mail. I throw them right in the trash can. But God knows all of that. And he hasn't closed the doors of Green Tree Community Church, and he hasn't told us to go away. He simply said, trust me with a reckless abandon and see if I don't meet your needs. Let's pray. Jesus, you you call us to what feels like a risky proposition. In a day and age where we are uh, tempted to uh, take the wiser course of action based on what this world says, you've called us to leave behind all of that. Not just in a financial set of, of terms, but in our hearts, and our souls, to trust you for our salvation, to trust you for our spiritual well-being for all of eternity. And you've also invited us to come along on the journey between now and heaven. And we, like Peter, would say, okay, Lord, we're, we're willing to take the step. Is it the right one? And you've showed us in this passage this morning your heart, which is for your disciples, and to see them grow in their trust in you and the assurance that you will provide for every one of our needs. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it will be simple or safe from our perspective, but it does mean that we are under your providential care and you call us to set aside the human notion of riches and wealth and you've called us 
to follow you, to care for our fellow man in the process. Lord Jesus, give us faith to risk it all, to abandon the world's security, and to follow you because we know that the risk leads to the right kind of rich. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, as I said earlier, we've got a bunch of cracked pots up here. This